Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and the generous gifts of our listeners to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you and to the world. If you don't already partner with Fighting for the Faith, visit our website at fightingforthefaith.com and click on one of our friendly yellow buttons. One says join our crew, the other says donate. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $8.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. If you want to specify the amount, you click on the donate button or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. And let me thank you for your support. We cannot do what we are doing here without it. And now, on to the program. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Monday, March 31st, 2014. All right. Looking at my program notes here. Gotta tell you, the day came, broadcast day came up quick. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseboro. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, help you slow down. Stop, open up your Bible. And compare what today's popular mega pastors and preachers and teachers and leaders and conference speakers, uh, what they're saying God's word says to actually what God's word says. <laughs> when you look at it in context, and uh, you'll find that uh, no shortage of crazy things being said out there, and uh, we're into the corrective work, if you would. Now, today's episode is going to seem like we're going to be all over the map. It's, you know, from time to time, our programs can uh, can be like that. So let me tell you what we're going to do. Uh, first hour, we got three things on deck. And I'm not actually going to be weighing in on the uh, the Driscoll confessions yet. And you're thinking, well, the, the Driscoll confessions, what? Um, yeah, the, uh, the Driscoll, Dr- former Mars Hill pastors, four of them at the, at the moment now have, uh, have put together a website and they've, they're confessing the things that they've done wrong, the sins that they committed, uh, while pastors at Mars Hill. And it's fascinating to, to watch. And I'm, I'm kind of waiting to see what happens here. I, you know, I, it's one of those things where you know I was interviewed about, in fact, about this topic on issues, et cetera. So I, I kind of weighed in a little bit. In fact, if you want to hear uh, my thoughts on it, kind of preliminarily, uh, go to issuesetc.org and uh, click on the uh, you know listen on demand archives and find uh, today's episode of issues, etc. It was during the four o'clock hour that. Uh, I discussed that. It was uh, spent half hour with uh, Todd Wilkin discussing it, and uh, f- you know, fascinating uh, phenomenon. But I'm kind of holding off on that, and I'm also holding off on um, the uh, you know, kind of the brewing story. We'll see if anything comes of it. Um, that uh, you know, of regarding Stephen Furtick and ex mayor of Charlotte uh, Patrick Cannon. Um, there's uh, there there's a potential story brewing there. 
And uh, and that's all I can say about it is that it's kind of potentially a story, but then it may not be a story. It's one of those things where, you know, I know that uh, there are um, uh, investigative reporters who are digging deep to uh, to actually be able to report on that story if there is a story. But until it breaks in, uh, in you know, in the mainstream media, um, you know, I, there's not much I can say about it except for that there potentially may be um, a connection between ex-mayor of Charlotte, uh, Patrick Cannon, who was arrested last week um, uh, by the FBI on public corruption charges and selling zoning decisions. And there may be a connection between him and Furtick, but it may be a connection. I mean, you know, you can't say that there is for sure. So, you know, just kind of one of those things, you know, be aware that there, there may be a story out there, but I, you know, I don't know what it is and exactly and you know, what the details are if, or even if there is a story. So, you know, people are asking if I'm going to weigh in on that. I'm not. And I'm not, by the way. I'm not going to weigh in on the Noah movie either. It's just, so weird, weird way to start the program today. I'm going to tell you the things I'm not going to talk about. Um, <laughs> yeah, I haven't seen the Noah movie. I don't have time to see the Noah movie. And I'm not a big fan of spending my money on on movies that are going to make me crazy. Um, and what I mean, <laughs> what I mean by that is this, is that, you know, I've read the reviews. I know of all the historical accuracies that are in the Noah movie, and I don't go to movies to sit there and go, oh, they got that wrong. Oh, they got that wrong. Oh, they got that wrong. Generally, when I go to a movie, I like to be able to be, you know, to be entertained. And I just don't find Bible twisting uh, to be something that I want to go to a movie to, uh, to, to, and pay to do it. I mean, I, I'll probably wait till it comes out on Netflix, you know, because I have a Netflix sus- subscription. So, you know, when it comes out on Netflix, I'll probably watch it. But um, knowing that I, you know, I may not like it, you know, it's one, <laughs> one of those things. So, um, you know, it's just the weirdest thing is, is that we keep, we got this flood this year. Yes, notice the pun. Uh, we've had a flood this year of really weird Bible twisted religious films. And it's like, do I? Why would I want to spend my money on watching a movie where I know I'm just going to sit there and go, nope, no, 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 you know, <laughs> yeah. The whole the whole point of a movie for me is there's that suspended disbelief kind of thing, you know, you know. So you know, when there's suspended disbelief, you can kind of step into the movie and experience it the way it was intended to be experienced. And I can't do that if you know I've got my hands and my feet out going, no, 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 you know, you know, so anyway, um, just one of those things. So, but I did, <laughs> but the funny thing was, uh, somebody on my Facebook wall posted a quote from, uh, Brian Houston of, uh, Hillsong, uh, you know, kind of giving kind of a, how do I say it? A half-hearted, um, endorsement of the, uh, of the Noah movie. <laughs> Yeah, here's the quote from Brian Houston, and I can't I can't do the uh, the Bruce the Shark voice, so I, I'm not even going to try. But here's the quote: "Quote, you can't help but get excited seeing the stories of the Word of God come to life in a Hollywood epic. The makers of this film have brilliantly entertained us with their interpretation of the biblical narrative." And of course, I reading that quote, I just cracked up because you know this is what Brian Houston every does every Sunday. He entertains people with his 
um, it, with his interesting interpretations of the biblical narrative. I mean, that's what these, <laughs> that's what guys like him do. So, I mean, see, he thought it was great because he just loved. He, he was entertained by their whimsical in, in, interpretation of the biblical narrative, and uh, I'm, <laughs> I, on the other hand, am not entertained by those things, at least generally. So, yeah. So there. Yeah. Anyway, so I'm not going to weigh in on the Noah movie. Here's what, yeah, this is, yeah, you kind of get where I'm at anyway on that. Um, so let's talk about what we are going to talk about on today's episode of Fighting for the Faith. We are going to begin with a Joel Osteen update. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right. We're, we did not have a Joel Osteen update last week. And, you know, I got to tell you, my life is probably better for it. But we did not have a Joel Osteen update last week. So we will begin this week with a Joel Osteen update. We will switch then to a Rob Bell update. Uh-huh. Um, what's funny is, is that I, you know, I, I can't believe I did this is that a while back, uh, Rob Bell appeared on Oprah's super soul Sunday and, uh, the, the, the interview took place, I think, uh, in Hawaii somewhere at, uh, Oprah's estate there, I think maybe on Maui or one of the other islands. I, I'm not exactly sure where her. Hawaiian estate is. And so Bell was flown across the Pacific to Hawaii to be interviewed by Oprah, you know, with the beautiful Hawaiian, you know, backdrop there. And the questions he was asked and the answers he gave were just like, it's like total train wreck. And of course, the question that of course needs to be asked is, is your church still using the NUMA videos? Uh-huh. Because uh, keep in mind, uh, Rob Bell was uh, the next best thing to Wonder Bread uh, back in the day with the NUMA videos. I mean, he was the staple uh, that many youth groups were teaching the youth by. And, um, you know, if, if, that, if that's still your youth group or you got youth who think that uh, Rob Bell is just the bee's knees, um, you, you might want to denumaize your uh, <clears throat> your church's um, youth group, if you know what I mean. One, okay. So then, what we'll do is when we come back, we'll take a break. When we come back from the break, in fact, I'm running a little bit long here on my monologue. But um, when we when we come when we finally get to it, we're going to uh, actually switch gears and we're going to do a David Crank update regarding you know kind of an interesting topic. Um, you know, the acid test of leadership. And it's like the acid test of leadership. How did that become a sermon? So we'll be listening to part of a message there, and uh, and then in hour number two. We will be uh, uh, doing a sermon from South Bay Church called Embrace Your Season. Embrace Your Season, uh, which you know I picked specifically because of the particular type of hermeneutical Bible twisting that takes place in it. And because uh, I want to kind of unpack that technique so that you don't fall for it and, uh, and don't put up with it if your pastor is engaging it. Uh, with at least that particular twisting technique. So with that, we're going to dive into the program proper. We have a lot of ground to cover. And uh, since we're going to be doing a a Joel Osteen update, uh, well, that requires me to do this. When I'm feeling lonely, sad as I can be, by myself in uncharted island in an endless sea. What makes me happy fills me up with glee. Those bones in my jaw that don't have a flaw, my shiny teeth and me. My shiny teeth that twinkle just like the stars in space. My shiny teeth that sparkle and beauty to my face. 
honey teeth that glisten just like the Christmas tree. You know they walk a mile just to see me smile. Woo! Shiny teeth and me. That's right. That's our Joel Osteen update music. And uh, we're going to be listening to part of a Joel Osteen message entitled, Be Comfortable with Who You Are. Be comfortable with who you are. Are you uncomfortable with yourself? <laughs> I mean, what kind of question is that, by the way? You know, you know, we're gonna, so the problem out there that everyone faces is that the Church of Jesus Christ needs to, you know, to actually address and clearly knock down is that problem that people are just uncomfortable with themselves. You know, see, the thing is, if you're uncomfortable with yourself, I don't even know how to begin to solve that problem because you can't ever leave yourself. You know, it's like, you know, there, by the way, there have been times that I've been uncomfortable with, you know, being in the presence of certain people. I mean, it just happens. I mean, there's certain people you're not comfortable being around. Uh, no problem. Okay, you know, you, you just work through that. I mean, you, you ever have that awkward moment at like when, you know, family get togethers like during, you know, Thanksgiving or Christmas or something like that. And, and you're just not comfortable around that particular person. You know, may, you know, maybe they hurt somebody in the family or whatever. Yeah, I get that. But I mean, what do you do if you're not comfortable with yourself? I mean, where can you go to get away from you? I, I don't know. But um, here's Joel Osteen to explain. <laughs> to us how the importance of being comfortable with who you are. Uh, <clears throat> here we go. Well, God bless you. It's always a joy to come into your homes. And if you're ever in our area, please stop by and be a part of one of our services. I promise you, we'll make you feel right at home. But thanks so much for tuning in. And thank you again for coming out. I like to start with something funny. And I heard about this pastor. He found a dead mule on the church grounds. He called the health department and they said they couldn't pick it up without authorization from the mayor. Well, the mayor was known to be very rude and hard to get along with. When the pastor called, the mayor didn't disappoint. He started ranting and raving and finally said to the pastor, why are you even calling me? Isn't it your job to bury the dead? The pastor prayed and asked God for the right response. He said, yes, mayor, it is my job to bury the dead, but I always like to notify the next of kin first. <laughs> Hold up your Bible. Say it like you mean it. This is my Bible. I am what it says I am. I have what it says I have. I can do what it says I can do. Today, I will be taught the word of God. Uh, no, you won't. I boldly confess my mind is alert. My heart is receptive. I will never be the same. In Jesus' name, God bless you. I want to talk to you today about being comfortable with who you are. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, okay, just scan, scanning through my memory banks here in my brain, okay? You're thinking through like the Gospel of Mark. Okay, the Gospel of Mark. Were there any places where Jesus talked about the importance of being comfortable with who I am? Nothing comes to mind. Okay, how about, okay, Matthew, Mark, no. I'm just kind of thinking through the gospel of Mark. Nothing there either. Huh. Um, how about Luke? Hang on. I'm just, I'm just kind of thinking through this. No, I can't think of anything in Luke or John either. Yeah, was this a major or minor theme of Jesus' teaching on earth? Which of the prophets talked about the importance of being comfortable with who you are? Yeah, I just, <laughs> I'm just like stumped at the moment. I mean, it's like, you know, I, I if I were on like, you know, you know, who wants to be a millionaire and, and somebody were to say to you, okay, so here's the question. Where in the Bible does it teach the importance of being comfortable with who you are? I mean, <laughs> and it is like, if I didn't have any lifelines, I would be 
in trouble. I mean, it would just be over, you know, but of course, you know, if I did have a lifeline, you know, I'd call Joel Osteen. (laughs) We continue. There's an underlying pressure in our society to be number one. If we're not the best, the leader, the fastest, the most talented, the most beautiful, the most successful, then we don't feel good about ourselves. We got to work harder. We got to run faster. A neighbor moves into a new house. Instead of being inspired, we're intimidated, thinking that's making me look bad. I got to keep up. A coworker gets a promotion. Yeah, have you ever heard of the sin of coveting? Wow. Ocean, we feel like we're falling behind. A friend is going to Europe on vacation. We're going to our grandmother's 12 miles down the road. Yeah, have you heard of sins regarding jealousy? If we're not careful, there's always something. Yeah, by the way, in the Greek, you know, when it ta- the sin of jealousy is often referred to in the Greek. It's a funny little idiom that they use there. It's called the evil eye. Yeah. Making us feel like we don't measure up. We're not far enough along. As long as you compare your situation to others, you will never feel good about yourself. Because there will all... <laughs> okay, um, already we've got a major problem. You're thinking, what, well, what's the problem, Chris? All right, let me explain. Okay, what he's just described is rank sin. I mean, sin, uh, you know, self-centered sin of like the worst kind, okay? We're talking about coveting and jealousy and you know, desiring other people's stuff. This is a huge sin. And Joel Osteen's big concern that you've committed these sins is that you're not going to feel good about yourself. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, that's like the least of my problems, okay? Um, you know, when I commit sins like this, you know, the, the last thing I'm thinking about, especially after reading the scriptures, is, you know, I, I really need to get past this so that I can think good about myself what i'm thinking is is oh man i have totally sinned against god and i've even sinned against my neighbor and thought evil of them as a result of this i mean these are the types of sins that are at the root and heart of the sin of murder and uh and i mean this is how serious this is and so how i feel about myself is kind of like like not even on my list you know the issue is is you know this is the kind of stuff that Christ bled and died for. I need to repent and be forgiven. But Joel Osteen, first thing out of his mind is, well, you're never going to feel good about yourself if you keep comparing. It's like, really? Uh Uh-huh. So what's the solution to uh, me being able to feel good about myself, Joel, as if that's somehow of Christian priority? Always be somebody more talented, more beautiful, more successful. You have to realize you're not running their race. You're running your race. You have yeah, that, again, doesn't address the sin issue that you actually described. A specific assignment. God has given you exactly what you need for the race that's been designed for you. A friend, a co-worker, a relative may seem to have a more significant gift. They can outrun you, outperform you. That's okay. You're not... Com- yeah, it's not hard to outrun me. Just, <laughs> just saying. ...competing with them. They have what they need for their assignment... You have what you need for your assignment. And if you make the mistake of trying to keep up with them, wondering, why can't I sing like that? Why can't I be the manager? When am I going to reach their level? Again, you're describing a terrible sin. If you're not content with your gift, comfortable with who God made you to be, 
then you'll go through life frustrated. That, that's, you know, man, um, you're kind of like not even addressing the issue here. Um, this is sin. Hello, sin. You know, it, it, what does the Apostle John say? If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Do you not know that these sins that you're describing, I mean, they are wicked. They are evil. They, this is so, that's so awful that Christ bled and died for these. And you're not telling people to repent to confess that this is sin, you're telling people to just, oh, just think more about yourself. Oh, I need to run my race. I, you know, I, you know, that kind of thing. So the solution for covetous selfishness is to just be more selfish and think really more about you. Hey, ay, ay. Envious, thinking, I wish I had her looks. I wish I had his talent. I wish I owned their business. No, if you had what they have, it wouldn't help you. It would hinder you. They have a different assignment. Quit trying to outperform someone, and then you're going to feel good about yourself. Soon as I move into their neighborhood, soon as my... Why is the goal to feel good about myself? Isn't the goal to be forgiven by God, to be reconciled? Part, you know, hello? Business catches up to there. Soon as I get that promotion. No, one of the best things I've learned is to be comfortable with who God made me to be. I don't have to outperform you to feel good about myself. So the solution for sinful narcissism is just to really be, have a super-focused narcissism. Oh, boy. I don't have to outbuild you, outdrive you, outrace you, outminister you, outproduce you. It's not about you. It's about becoming who God made me to be. And I'm all for... It's not about you. It's about me. Oh, man. <laughs> Whew. This is horrifying. Yet, you know, we're to love and serve our neighbors. And this is narcissism just really, really run amok. I mean, so badly that we're, we've slapped a Christian facade on this. Wow, Christianized narcissism. I mean, what a terrible, awful idea. Or having goals, stretching, believing big, that's important. But you have to accept the gift that God has given you. You shouldn't feel less than if someone seems to have a more significant gift. It takes a secure person to say, I'm comfortable with who I am. See, I realize I'm never going to be able to minister like T.D. Jakes. But that's okay. Maybe one day he'll get better. Uh, T.D. Jakes is a heretic. I would never want to minister like that. But I hear these ministers... They have deep voices. They're great orators. They can move the congregation with their words, give you chill bumps. And I get up here with my Texas twang. (laughs) This is what I've been given. I can improve it. I can develop it. I can cultivate it. But my voice is never going to sound like James Earl Jones. There's always going to be somebody that can minister better. Where is this taught in the Bible? Oh, yeah, it's not. Further along, more experience. But you know what? That doesn't bother me. I know I have the gifts I need for my assignment. And here's the key. You don't have to have a great gift for God to use it in a great way. You know what the gift David had that put him on the throne? It wasn't his leadership skills. It wasn't his dynamic personality. It wasn't his ability to write and play music. 
really, what, <laughs> I'm just dying here to figure out, well, really, what was the key to David's success? Please do tell. It was his gift to sling a rock. Uh, yeah, because, well, you know, everybody knows that good rock slingers are yeah, kingly material. Okay, we, <laughs> we are five minutes and 30 seconds into that. And let me kind of just end with this thought. Second Timothy chapter three, the apostle Paul prophesied of these days. Here's what he said. Understand this, that in the last days, there will come times of difficulty for people will be lovers of self. Yeah. Narcissists, Mm -hmm. lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving the good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. And what does the Apostle Paul say to do regarding these people? Avoid them. Avoid such people. And the Apostle Paul was literally warning us about men just like and including Joe Osteen, lover of self. This is a man who can be talking about the most pernicious, selfish, envious, jealous type of sin, and his solution is to have you focus more on yourself rather than to repent and see it for what it is, sinful wickedness, and be forgiven by the shed blood of Christ and what he's done to secure our salvation on the cross. And he's all dressed up in church and playing church. He has a a form, an outward form of godliness, but he denies the true power of the gospel. He doesn't even know what it is. All right, we're up on our first break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Follow me on Twitter, my name there, at pirate Christian. Quick break when we come back. We have a uh, Rob Bell update, kind of long overdue too, and then a David Crank update. Don't want to miss it. We will be right back. Sissioprified religiosity won't save you. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> Python's Flying Circus Church. Hello. I wish to register a complaint. Uh, we're closing for lunch. Never mind that, my lad. I wish to complain about the sermon that I purchased a day ago from this very boutique. Uh, yes. Uh, what, what's wrong with it? I'll tell you what's wrong with it, my lad. It's a dead sermon. That's what's wrong with it. No, not possible. You just preached it wrong. Look, matey. I know a dead sermon when I preach one, and I know that the sermon I preached yesterday was certainly dead. Jesus Christ wasn't mentioned once, not even in the footnotes. No, no, you just weren't charismatic enough. Remarkable sermon, beautiful imagery. The imagery don't enter into it. It's stone dead. No, 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 no. You're just not open-minded enough. All right, then. If it's not dead, then I should be able to preach the gospel. 
I'll read a portion of it. Ahem. And then the camp counselor told all of the woodland creatures to become more righteous so that they too could get to the place called heaven. You, you see what I mean? This is ridiculous. There. I found the gospel in the sermon. No, you didn't. That was you just writing the word gospel on the cover of the room temperature sermon. Well, I never. Yes, you did. I, I never, never did anything. This entire sermon fails to preach anything that's worth anything to anyone. Now, that's what I call a dead sermon. No, no, no. You haven't looked deep enough into yourself. You must be joking. Well, you're just being divisive, and you refuse to accept the message that's being presented. Um, Now, look. Now, look. Mate, I've definitely had enough of this. That sermon is definitely rotten. And when I purchased it not but a day ago, you assured me that it was Christ-centered, cross-focused, and filled to bursting with the gospel. Well, if you would just read the title. Read the title? What kind of title is this anyway? Super Spiritual Happy Fun Friends Adventure Camp Pack. Well, this particular sermon is designed to draw large audiences, and that's what you said you wanted. It has lovely imagery. Look, I took the liberty of examining this sermon after I preached it, and I discovered the only reason why I bought it in the first place was because it had been put into the wrong sleeve packet. Well, of course it's in the wrong package sleeve. If I hadn't put a less suspicious cover on the sermon, you'd have had people chasing you just so that they can hear you preach it. Chasing me down the street? Mate, listen, people wouldn't be chasing me to hear this rubbish if I was firing midgets out of cannons. It's bleeding demise. You didn't buy the midget cannon expansion pack? The sermon has passed on. The sermon is no more. It has ceased to be. It's expired and gone to me and its maker. It's a stiff. Bereft of life, it burns in hell. If you hadn't put it in the wrong package sleeve, I would be using it for Firestarter. The thought processes that brought it about are now history. It's off the twig. It's kicked the bucket. The bleeding choir invisible wouldn't listen to this sham. This is an ex-sermon. Uh, well, well, I, I better replace it then. Let's see. Uh, Christ-centered, uh, gospel, Jesus. Well, sorry, Squire. I've had a look around in the back of the shop and, uh, well... We're right out of whatever it is that you're looking for. I see. I see. I get the picture. I I got a sermon here from Rick Warren. Does it contain Jesus Christ and his atoning sacrifice? Well, no, not really. Well, that's hardly a replacement, is it? Look, if if, if you're really dead set on the whole Jesus thing, I suggest that you look up Pirate Christian Radio. All they do is talk about Jesus 24-7. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Pirate Christian Radio? Very well, I'll give them a try. Don't pay more for travel than you need to. Hi, Chris Rosebro here to tell you about Pirate Christian Radio's featured advertiser, Cheapo Air. Cheapo Air is a leading provider of airline tickets, hotel rooms, and rental cars. Cheapo Air has extensive partnerships with the top travel brands in the world. Now, whether you need to travel for business or for pleasure, Cheapo Air can help you save money. And if you visit our website, piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, we have a promo code that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. So visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, then click on the banner and book your low-cost travel today. And remember, a portion of your purchase at Cheapo Air goes to support Pirate Christian Radio. Uh, 
warning, listening to Fighting for the Faith will cause you to become supremely dissatisfied with your favorite celebrity Christian personality. Um, it's almost inevitable. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts, financial contributions, in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you into the world, and you can partner with us. That's right. It's a partnership by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see our two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate. The other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $8.95 every month. It's a recurring bill, and it's not a lot of money. And we're, t- we're talking about two cups of coffee or venti cups of coffee at Starbucks is what we're really talking about uh, in a month. And it's a great way to support us. And, of course, if you'd like to actually specify the amount, you can make a one-time contribution by clicking on the Donate button. Or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith. And then send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. And let me thank you for your support because the reality is is we can't do what we are doing here without it. All right. It's been a while since we have done a Rob Bell update, and uh, we're going to be doing that. In fact, this is long overdue. Um, Here is our Rob Bell update music. Here we go. Someday you will find me caught beneath the landslide in a champagne supernova in the sky. Someday That's Oasis in Champagne Supernova, and I have no idea what that means. <laughs> Why well, use it for Rob Bell update? Okay, so uh, recently, and in fact, like I said, this is a little bit overdue. Uh, recently, Rob Bell appeared on Oprah's Super Soul Sunday, and uh, in order to answer questions regarding his book, What We Talk About When We Talk About God, and Oprah asked him some pretty straightforward questions, and uh you know, <laughs> let's just put it this way. If 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 I had Rob Bell uh, in my catechism class, you know, if if he were, uh, you know, getting ready for confirmation in my church and uh, and if I were to ask him questions like these, these and these were the answers that he gave, uh, I, he, I wouldn't commune him. <laughs> Just say it. He would fail. I would not actually say, yeah, yeah, you're 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 ready to uh um, be a part of uh, the uh, commun- uh, communion here within our congregation. I'd fail this kid and and uh, treat him as an unbeliever. But um, it, it's <laughs> get ready for some pretty bizarre answers to some pretty straightforward questions. Here's Oprah and Rob Bell. Here we go. All right, here we go. Okay. What is the soul? It's the thing that keeps telling you there's more. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) No, that's not it. Oh man! I mean, we we could talk about nefesh. We you know the Hebrew word for it. we could talk. We, there's a lot we could talk about here. You know that hum, humans are made, comprised of body and soul, and that you know, otherwise known as spirit or pneuma, to use the old famous Rob Bell word, right? Um, but so what's the soul? It's that thing inside that <laughs> keeps telling you there's more. 
Uh, no, no, that that thing that keeps telling me there's more, that actually might be greed. I'm not sure which thing you're talking about. There's more. Yeah. There's more. This isn't just a meal. This isn't just a person. This isn't just an embrace. This isn't just an interview. There's more. Yeah. <laughs> Learn these answers from the Dalai Lama? Next question. Well, your definition of God? Okay, what's your definition of God? By the way, this is a bad question. What's your definition of God? Hey, uh, listen, uh, stop, knock that nonsense off. The question is, what is God or who is God? Not what's my definition, my definition. Okay, so there's the question. What's your definition of God? Okay, are you ready? Please assume the crash position. Um, By the way, I should play my warning at this point, but I'm not. So you just understand you're warned. Okay, so the question on the table is, what's your definition of God? Here we go. Like a song you hear in another room and you think, Boy, that sounds beautiful, but I only can hear a little bit. So you start opening doors and rearranging furniture because you have to get in that room to hear that song. When you get in, you find the knobs and you turn them all to the right because you're like, I got to hear more of that. And then you open the windows because you want the people in the next houses to hear it. That's your definition of God. Somebody send Rob Bell a copy of Luther's Small Catechism, please. What on earth is that? Okay, let's... I. This is like a train wreck. I can't wait to hear more. What's the difference between religion and spirituality, or is there a difference? Well, you know, some say that religions, people don't want to go to hell, and spirituality, people who've been to hell. <laughs> yeah, notice the, 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 uh, the question and the answers assume. Religion, bad. Spirituality, good. Mm, well, i got to be into spirituality. Uh, yeah, the, uh, bad dichotomy, by the way. <laughs> Already. Um, religion should be the structures, the prayer tables, the things that you do in the course it should help you it should cultivate it should be the practices it should be the symbols it should be the rituals that cultivate your sense that there's more okay so it's the rituals that 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 help cultivate your sense that there's more but wait a second um that's my soul i'm trying to use your definitions here so the um never mind this is just i mean this isn't even christian theology i don't know what this is okay what's the next question oprah what does prayer mean to you what does prayer mean to you? Again, really bad question. Prayer to me is usually one word, which is yes. <laughs> Where did you get catechized? What is this? Prayer is usually one word, and it's yes. Really? Yes. I'm open. What's next? <laughs> That's what it is. Uh-huh, right. <laughs> and of course, here's the funny thing. Because Rob Bell appeared on Oprah's Super Soul Sunday, um, there were a gazillion people all around the world watching this interview, and there were people taking notes and going, Oh, wow. That was deep. That was profound. That, wow, this is going to change my life. And I'm watching this going, that was stupid. That was just dumb. That was like not even an answer. That was like not even biblical. These aren't even answers. This is the sentence, blue sleeps faster than Tuesday. It's like, wow, man, it's like got a noun and a predicate verb thing going on there. But the sentence doesn't mean anything. Huh, let's, let's see if there's more. What is the lesson it's taken you the longest to learn? Mm-hmm. This sounds so, so pious, so spiritual, doesn't it? 
what's the lesson that's taken you the longest to learn? And, I, of course, I have my answer to this question for Rob Bell, and that would be logic. Yeah, the, the logic, actually. A equals A, yeah. He, it's taken him a long time to learn this, and I don't even think he's embracing the lesson yet. That there's nothing to prove. Oh, wow. Wow. <laughs> Again, um, it just makes me wonder, has he moved to a state where pot is legal? Um <laughs> These are the, these are the answers of a pot smoker. I mean, this is. I mean, seriously, I can hear Cheech and Chong giving these answers. You know, because <sighs> you're young and you start out and you're like, look at me. I can work harder. I can work faster. I'm smarter. Look at me. Respect. Everybody understand what I'm. And then later you realize oh, there's nothing to prove anymore. All that's left to do is enjoy. What do you think happens when we die? Okay. What do you think happens when we die? Answer. Okay, there's no way for me to answer this question because um, I, well, in and of my own self, I have no way of, of knowing what happens when we die. But Christ himself, Jesus himself, has died. He's risen again. And he, in his word, gives us some data regarding what has what happens to us when we die. Now, this is an important thing, by the way, regarding that Heaven is for Real movie. Listen, I'm not about to to listen to some kid who's died and you know had a near-death experience to give me my theology regarding what happens to people when we die. Why? Because he hasn't really died and risen again in the sense that Christ has. So I trust Jesus. I'm going with his word and what is uh, you know, the theology that I'm supposed to be paying attention to in Scripture, not somebody's personal experiences, which you know, may or may not be explainable via just brain chemistry. You know what I'm saying? So that being the case, what happens when we die? Answer, Scripture says some things. For instance, when you die, if you are in Christ, then you are with the Lord. You know, the Apostle Paul says, you know, I, I, I you know, what shall I choose? You know, to remain in the body is to continue in labor, but, you know, I long to depart and to be with the Lord, which is far better, which is a good thing. You know, Jesus says to the... Uh, uh, the thief on the cross who you know who says lord remember me when you come come into your kingdom jesus says to him today you will be with me in paradise good stuff so you know what happens when we die now as for those who are not in christ when they die the answer to the question is well they remain they are they go to a place that's doomy dark and and well described in metaphors of fire and things like that it's it's a they are held in judgment until the judgment day and then they're finally thrown into the lake of fire this is what scripture says about them so there you go what's the difference between the sheep and the goats what's the difference between those who exp- who go to eternal life and are with Christ in paradise and those who are well judged and Punished for eternity? Answer, the difference is that some are penitent sinners who confess Christ as Lord and have received the forgiveness of their sins by faith. And faith itself is a gift given by God. Whereas there are those who, well, they persist in sin and unbelief and um, they don't want to be forgiven. And so they're not. Then they're judged according to their evil deeds. This is what Scripture teaches. So, I mean, this is a great question. Um, do you think Rob Bell's going to give an answer anywhere close to or approaching the answer that I just gave? Let's find out. I'm afraid to press the play button. Here we go. 
I think there's a ton of, oh, because there's all these people that have gone before you. There's a, there's a, a ton of, oh, what, what have, you know, you're not making a distinction between those who are going, oh, and those who are going, oh, yeah. And some people say, well, then you meet God. I think, yeah, but I never met my grandpa on my dad's side. So actually, when I think of, like, dying, I think of, I'll get to meet Preston. Mm. That's actually what I think of first. I don't think of sort of gold and a, a, a throne and like a, hello, Rob, well done. You're <laughs> strange, but I like you anyway. I don't, I don't think of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm not hearing anything even remotely sounding like Christian doctrine or biblical theology here. On what basis are you saying that God's going to say to you, well done, Rob? <laughs> I think of like my grandpa that I never met, to be honest. And there's Oprah. Mm, yeah. And like heritage and family bloodline. All of them who came before you. Yeah, I somehow think of flesh and blood. Mm-hmm. I think of like... You think you're going to see them? People I've heard. I think of. I think of. Notice all of this is based upon what Rob Bell thinks. Has he died? Does he know what to expect? I mean, where can we go to find out what happens to us when we die? Answer, we can only go to a place where it's revealed. And the place where it's revealed has to be a sure sure revelation. Otherwise, it's just speculation. You know what I'm hearing from Rob Bell here? Uh, again, this, this is a kid. If he were in my catechism class, I would flunk him. I, w- I would tell his parents, I am sorry. Um, I know that you were hoping that Rob could... Um, be confirmed this year and that uh, he'd be able to participate with us at the Lord's table. Um, But he's a pagan. Um, He's actually a pantheist and uh, he doesn't confess um, the Christian faith. Um, He's made up his own religion. It's, it's quite spiritual ish, but uh, he's not a Christian. Um, So um, we can't actually invite him to participate with in the Lord's supper with us because um, we're not one with him at all. And uh, it would be a bad thing for him if he were, we were to commune him. So that's what I would say. Um, but um, <laughs> there you go. Moving along. Yeah, time for a David Crank update to end off the hour here. Uh, Gary Wright's Dreamweaver. That's our uh, David Crank update music. Because he's all about kind of like dreams and things like that. Although this particular message that we're going to listen to a portion of is entitled The Acid Test of Leadership. The Acid Test of Leadership. And, of course, the, the obvious question that comes up with a sermon or message entitled that is, who are you trying to reach with that message? Because keep in mind, the, the job of a pastor is to preach the word to Christians, to Christ's sheep. And uh, and so my question is, who is he trying to reach with this? So <clears throat> we're about to find out. Here's David Crank, uh, a portion of his message entitled The Acid Test of Leadership. Of course, that, that great burning theological Christian dogma, you know, the leadership dogma. <clears throat> Here we go. I want to talk to you tonight primarily to business people. Primarily to business people. I, I coach different people, different. You're going to talk primarily to business people. You, th- that means you're going not going to talk to the people that showed up to church that aren't business people. Do do pastors have a right to do that? 
organizations and so on, and especially business people. And today, I want to talk to you about going to the next level. If I were to title this message, and I did earlier, it would be the acid test of leadership. The acid test of leadership. You know, there's leadership and then leader slip. We all dream of being a leader, and you are a leader, even if you don't think you're a leader. Doesn't it sound like uh, David Crank has failed the acid test of pastoral ministry? I mean, just with this few seconds we've played of this message. You lead your own life. It's important to lead your own life. Until you lead your own life, of course, we're certainly not able to lead anyone else's life. And tonight I'm not speaking from I have everything in control and I know everything, but I do know a few things. And the things that I do know, I'm going to share with you. That which I don't know, I'm not going to share with you because we don't need to know what I don't know. Isn't your job to preach the word? This is a Christian message from a so-called Christian pastor from a Christian church. What are you doing? Isn't that right? I want to start out with something kind of funny. I love this story. Said a man in a hot air balloon release was lost, and he reduced his altitude, and he spotted below a woman, and he descended, and he shouted, Excuse me, I need your help. I promised a friend I'd meet him about an hour ago, but I don't know where I am. The woman replied, You're in a hot air balloon approximately 30 feet above the ground. You're between 40 and 40 degrees north latitude, 59 and 60 longitude. He said, You must be an engineer. She said, I am. How'd you know? So, well, the balloonist replied, everything you told me is technically correct, but I have no idea what your information means. In fact, frankly, I'm still as lost as I ever was, and you haven't been much help. In fact, you've delayed my trip. The woman replied, well, you must be in management. She said, how'd you know? The woman said, well, you know, you don't know where you are. You don't know where you're going. You've risen to the top due to a large quantity of hot air. You've made a promise, but you have no idea how to keep, and you expect other people beneath you to solve your problem. The fact is you're in the same position you were a minute ago, but somehow you've managed to make it my fault. Leadership. Um, um, What does this have to do with God's word? Leadership. Everybody shout leadership. leadership. All right. Now, Proverbs 24, verse 27 says, prepare your work outside. Work it fit for yourself in the field. And then afterward, build your house. You know, business people oftentimes build uh, corporations and empires. And they start by making that their baby. They nurse it. They rehearse it. They feed it. They rock it. They burp it. They take care of it. They take the organization to the next level because they're focused on that. In fact, they're not even focusing, as Proverbs says, on their own physical house. Most of the time, it's later in life when you get the rewards. Many leaders that have spoken in my life have referred to it as feeding a baby cow. It's like you love the cow and you feed the cow, but there's a purpose for the cow, and we all know what that is. We're going to milk it. You were going to kill it. I was just milking the cow. <laughs> but you feed it, and you make decisions along the way. And these feedings and this time passes, and then eventually you're in control of something great, and then you eat the fruits of your labor. So today I want you to think about yourself and other people, and and perhaps this will be the acid test of why you're not really where you want to go, and then how to get to where you really need to be, but yet you're not blaming it on the people around you. Isn't the job of a Christian pastor to to preach about where we're really, really, really need to be going. And that's heaven, you know, to be with the Lord, the new heavens, the new earth, that kind of thing, you know, eternity with Christ and not eternity in hell, which is what we deserve. I mean, when did it become the job of a Christian pastor to coach business people regarding leadership and management? 
and, and <clears throat> this is weird. Number one, I want you to write this down. That fast decisions are usually wrong decisions. Fast decisions are usually wrong decisions. You know, when, when choosing people for promotion, it is important to understand that, that nothing is more important in the life of a leader than heart. You're looking for heart. Would you say that with me? Heart. Which one of Jesus' sermons taught this? I mean, this is like an adventure missing the point. Do you go to church to get leadership and business coaching tips and, you know, insights? I mean, the key to leadership is heart. Um, I don't think Proverbs says that. I'll take heart over talent and education any day of the week. Heart. Now, I love it and value the process of education and talent, and I'd like to have that. It'd be great to have talent and education and heart. But, but sometimes within an organization, uh, the leadership lid has, has this lid that it, it can't seem to lift because they haven't properly tested the people. Tested. Now, a test is just a matter of life. Every organization, every person has went through a series of tests. We just get testing. God tests you. You must test yourself and you must test other people before you bring them into your organization. And if you're overlooking, listen to me, if you're, you know, I have an MBA and I don't consider any of this stuff to even be helpful at all. I mean, if I were in a course, you know, I graduated from Pepperdine, I have an MBA from Pepperdine. And my, if one of my professors were to teach this in one of our business classes, I would have his head on a platter and demand my money back. You're overlooking this glaring problem, this attitude, this resentment. Well, you know, he's really talented. He's really gifted. But, you know, he does blow up on people and, and he can't get along with other people. I mean, you know, that is a problem. Come on, raise your hand. If it, you, you want to participate so we don't think it's you. You're like, I ain't got a problem. Anybody got time for that? So before you invest yourself or the followers around you or the people in your organization in someone and you give them a lot, a lot of uh, uh, leverage in the organization, be sure that you've tested them. The Bible said to know those people who labor among you. Everybody shout, you have to test them. So before you invest a lot of time or mass, which verse was that from? Massive amount of energy into someone, you must make sure that you follow your blink. Blink. Malcolm Gladwell. Anybody read the book? Malcolm Gladwell. Blink. It's not a Christian book, but it has a lot. Follow your blink. Uh-huh. So now you're preaching from Malcolm Gladwell's books. Yeah. You know, Malcolm Gladwell delivered part of the message at Saddleback a few years ago. So, I mean, he must be on the level, right? A lot, a lot of similarities along with the Bible. That blink. Gladwell talks about a organization uh, who actually a, a historic museum who was going to buy this priceless painting that was, they was getting a deal on. And it was a, an exorbitant amount of money. And, and they had all kinds of people research it. And they tested it. They checked it all out. And they said, it is real. But one of the guys who came into the organization, he looked at the painting and he had this blink. It's not real. It, it, they lost hundreds of millions of dollars and a lot, a lot of time. But eventually, when they really checked it out and scoped it out, at the end of the trail... The guy who had the blink was right. As many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. The Bible said to test. Wait, 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 wait. The Bi- You're taking a, a, a snippet from one of the early chapters of Gladwell's book, Blink. And now you're, you've jumped over to being led by the Spirit. So you're saying that the guy who saved that museum or actually uh, I had the blink moment that and found out the statue wasn't real, that he was being led by the Holy Spirit? Huh? Yes, the spirit. You got to check it out. So a lot of times your blink, that gut reaction that you have about hiring them, about marrying them, 
about elevating them, you got to make sure you listen to the Spirit of God. Or your wife. <laughs> what is this? I mean, this isn't even lucid. I mean, you're jumping around all over the place. So I, so the, you tell me some anecdotal story from the book Blink, and now you're saying you need to listen to the Spirit or listen to your wife. <sighs> Come on, somebody ought to say amen. There's something inside a woman. A woman has something. They call it a a woman's intuition. My wife will tell me sometime, watch that guy. Look out for them. Well, I know you want to promote them, or I know you want to do that. And yes, their organizational skills are quite amazing. Yes, their talent is beyond what, I mean, it's just beyond what we could ever ask for. But there's this one thing, one thing. Do you know that one thing can keep you back? It did with a rich young ruler. He came to Jesus. He has a great talent. He's an incredible businessman. He's loaded. God looks at him and he says, I want you to sell everything that you have and give it to the poor. Now, it wasn't that God was trying to get anything from him. God was actually looking for a new person because the first person he hired was the wrong fit. He What? Because <laughs> the first person he hired was the wrong fit? What? <laughs> I've read that about the story of the rich young ruler. What are you talking about? God was actually looking for a new person because the first person he hired was the wrong fit. (laughs) I mean, who knew that the story of the rich young ruler was all about hiring the wrong person and them not being a good corporate fit? (laughs) What is this? He hired Judas. While he wasn't looking, Judas was stealing out of the bag. And Jesus didn't even know it because he had plenty of money in his organization. Are you saying that Jesus was trying to hire the rich young ruler because he was trying to get, he was trying to fire Judas? I've never heard anybody say anything as preposterous as that. But Judas was stealing out a bag. And I have a question for you, Mr. Businessman. If Jesus had a Judas, what makes you think you don't have one? Always look. <laughs> well, the weird part about it is, is because uh, David Crank isn't doing his job, and that's correctly teaching God's word and proclaiming Christ and him crucified for our sins and calling people to uh, repent and to be forgiven, um, he's behaving well, like a Judas to Jesus, because he's not doing what he's supposed to be doing as a pastor. I mean, I don't know what that was, but it, I think that uh, David Crank clearly has failed the uh, the acid test of pastoral leadership. All right, we're up on our second break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate christian or follow me on twitter my name there at pirate christian quick break when we come back a sermon entitled embrace your season from south bay church details after the break stay tuned don't want to miss it we will be right back god doesn't need your good works your neighbor needs them you're listening to fighting for the faith pirate christian radio theater presents death of a salesman are ye a salesman? Why, yes, I am. Can I interest you in some... You're listening to Byron Christian Radio. 
No, seriously. Starfleet wouldn't have lasted two minutes against the Death Star. Say what you want, dude. Why can't you admit that Star Trek created proton torpedoes first? So what are you saying? Without proton torpedoes, Luke Skywalker would never have been able to destroy the Death Star in the first place. Nuh-uh, bro. He had the Force. You mean midichlorians? That never happened. Those movies were just bad fanfics. Hey! Have you two seen any Daleks around here? Uh, no. That's funny. We just picked up a distress signal and decided to check it out. Well, we haven't seen any... Come on, you two! Get in! Run! Never fear, nerds of the world. It doesn't matter whether you're into Star Wars, Star Trek, or Doctor Who. Think Geek has something for almost every fandom around. Celebrate your love of all things nerdy by going to www.piratechristianradio.com forward slash geek. And by clicking on the ad banner, a portion of your purchase will go to supporting Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. Hour number two of Fighting for the Faith Sermon Review Time. Yeah, I picked this particular sermon because like the other stuff we've listened to today, um, it totally misses the point of what Scripture teaches and kind of like doesn't even attempt to really actually truly teach God's Word. Yeah details in a second. Here we go. Get the bad, the ugly. We review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We're an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Today's sermon comes to us via South Bay Church, San Jose, California. Andy Wood presiding. The name of the sermon is Embrace Your Season. And supposedly, um, it's going to be teaching us what... The, uh, what Solomon was trying to tell us about having margin in our life. And you're thinking, when did Solomon teach us about the importance of margin and stuff? Well, of course, it's right there in Ecclesiastes 3. You know, for everything there's a season, a time for every matter under the heaven. Yeah, it's all about margin. <laughs> you're thinking, are you serious? Yeah, yeah. yeah I'm dead serious. <laughs> so let me go ahead and uh, kill the music. And without any further ado, here is Andy Wood in his sermon entitled, Embrace Your Season. Here we go. Today to the continuation of our Overloaded series, and I want to say a special welcome to those of you who are joining us via our Sunnyvale campus. We've been looking through this series about how to live with less stress 
and more peace. And to get us started today, I want to play a game. Both of our campuses, everybody, if you would participate. This is called the blank is better than blank game. Now, here's the way it works. I tell you two objects and you choose which of the two is a better object. You can do it by raising your hand. I'll go through it and then we'll all say which we think is better. We'll start with an easy one. Is it better to be a man or to be a woman? I'm just kidding. That actually is not a part of the game. All right. All right. Let's try some real objects here now that that really do um, that we can kind of choose. Okay. So is it better to write with a pen or a pencil? How many of you say it's better to write with a pen? Raise your hand. How many of you like to have the ability to erase your work with a pencil? All right. Second one is this. Can anyone tell me what the function of this part of the sermon is in a sermon? I I don't understand what this is. The job of the pastor is to preach the word. So don't you think you might want to like have everybody open their Bibles, you know, turn to the passage in Ecclesiastes chapter three as we're working through the book of Ecclesiastes and then give a little background, remind people of the context of what's going on here and then read the biblical text and then begin to exegete it. Mm-hmm. What does this text say? What does it mean? Not what does it mean to you, but what does it mean? Isn't that how things are supposed to be operating here? The job pastor preached the word, you know what I'm saying? So already we're off to a weird start, and I, I don't know what the purpose of this is. Is this the icebreaker function? I don't understand it. This. Is it better to wear a T-shirt and be comfortable or a collared shirt and dress to impress? How many of you would say it's better to be comfortable in a T-shirt? Raise your hand. Sunnyvale, participate as well. How many of you would say it's better to have that collared shirt on? Maybe when you have an interview for your job, that's important. All right. Third one is, is it better to wear shorts or pants? How many of you would say it's better to wear shorts? Raise your hands up high. How many of you would say it's better to wear pants? And I know that some of you answered that question based upon how white your legs are. (laughs) Number four is this. Is it better to drive a minivan or a smart car? How many of you say minivan? Raise your hands up high. How many of you say smart car? There is a high contingency of both of those here in Silicon Valley. All right, last question. This might be the most difficult of all the questions, folks. Is it better to use a fork or a spoon? Better to be able to stab it or to have more capacity on the utensil? How many of you would say it's better to use a fork? How many of you would say it's better to use a spoon? All right. Okay, the rest of you, you're not going to use an object at all. You just use your hands, right? <laughs> all right. So I played this game last night with my boys, and my son came and looked at me afterwards, and he said, Dad, I don't like that game. You have to give us scenarios to choose which is better than the other. And I was like, exactly. You got the point. See, there are two approaches that we can take with life, and one is an approach where we try to balance together two objects or two tasks or two responsibilities. It's the result that you get when you take a fork and a spoon and you put them together. What do you get? You get a useless item that nobody ever uses called a spork. How many of you used a spork for breakfast this morning? Maybe one or two of you. The rest of us, we use the item that is correct for the moment. You get useless items like those cargo pants that have zippers around the legs. You know, I mean, they're not a fashion statement, guys. 
But of course, you can take the bottom part of the leg off when you're hiking. But it's, it's this blending together, this idea of balance where you try to do two things at once. Now, what in the world does this have to do with stress? The question I have is, when did the Bible become a, a book about stress relief? You know, by the way, uh, if you read your New Testament, uh, being a Christian could increase the stress in your life. Have you never read Second uh, Corinthians chapter 11, Paul talking about his experience as a Christian? Um, here's what Paul writes in Second Corinthians chapter 11. I'll start at verse 21. Um, he says, whatever anyone else dares to boast of, I am speaking as a fool. I also dare to boast of that. Well, are they Hebrews? Talking about the super apostles. Well, so am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Um, are they offspring of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? Well, I'm a better one. I, I, I think I'm talking like a madman. With far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings and often near death, Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked at night and a day adrift at sea. On frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night in hunger and thirst, often without food and cold and exposure... And apart from other things, there's the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Who is weak and I'm not weak? Who's made to fall and I'm not indignant? Yeah. <laughs> um, boy, the Apostle Paul just, I mean, if only he knew that the Bible was all about finding tips and techniques so that he can decrease the margin or widen the margin in his life so he wouldn't have had to go through all of that stress. I mean, <clears throat> We continue things at once. Now, what in the world does this have to do with stress? Absolutely nothing. We're just playing a game together. I'm just kidding. I'm taking you somewhere with all this. Now, the other approach to life is an approach that we operate or cooperate within the rhythms of life. One is balance and one is rhythm. Operate or cooperate within the rhythms of life. Did you find this on, like, you know, a book at the Whole Foods Market? What, where are you getting this? Now, the balance approach to life says that you p- try to put it all together at once. The rhythm approach, the rhythm answer to all of the questions I just asked. Yes, now, I, call me old school, but I thought the rhythm approach applied to something different. Just, just saying, you know. Asked you is, it depends. It depends if you're eating a piece of steak, you should have a fork and a knife. It depends if you have five kids, you should be in a minivan. It depends what the situation is. And here's what happens. So often in life, we experience tremendous amounts of stress relationally with responsibilities because we try to balance it all. We try to keep all the plates spinning in our lives and we're trying to do everything at once and we find ourselves overloaded so let's play yeah i mean the apostle paul clearly he he should have understood this and not experienced all that stress he experienced in his life play the game again together this time you don't have to respond this is rhetorical but i'll just throw it out to make my point is it better to work or to rest some of you like definitely better to rest is it better to give up your load or to persevere is it better to make decisions for your kids or to let them decide for themselves Is it better to date or to dump? Is it better to celebrate or to discipline? Now, if you take a balanced approach to life, you try to do it 
all at once and you get friends with benefits and you keep dumping them and you keep dating them and it's, you're just not really sure what to do. Or you find yourself hanging out with your kids. Are you going to note the fact that friends with benefits is sinful and that uh, that they need to repent and be forgiven and that Christ died for that uh, that sexual immorality? I mean, you just throw out the term friends with benefits and not even discuss the fact that yeah, they're breaking the more than uh, one commandment here. And you got the laptop open and your kids are playing games around you. You're trying to work. You're neither working effectively or engaging relationally. Or if you try to balance everything, you go out on a date with your spouse and you have work to do. So you pull your phone out and you're trying to respond to emails and you're doing neither of the two effectively. See, a balance approach says that you try to do it all at once. But a rhythm approach, embracing the unique season of life or the unique moment that you find yourself in is that you engage in that moment that sometimes it's better to rest. Sometimes it's better to play. Sometimes it's better to dump. Sometimes it's better to date. And what does this have to do with Christian discipleship and Christian sanctification? This is nonsense. It depends. And today I want to talk to you about the- You do know that, uh, that during the season that you're preaching, that your job is to preach the word, right? this idea of embracing your unique season of life and learning to cooperate within the rhythms and the order of how God has determined that life should flow. (laughs) You're making God sound like she's mother nature. I mean, yeah, I used the feminine there on purpose because the God you're describing here is not the God of the Bible. This sounds like mother nature. You see, when you try to balance it all, when you try to do it all at once, you find yourself overloaded. But if you can learn to cooperate with God and operate within the rhythms of life that he has defined, embracing the unique season of life you find yourself in. Yeah, you're just repeating the same point. Uh, Where does the Bible actually say this? You will experience greater peace and less stress. And that's what I want to talk to you about today. Okay, so there's a claim out on the table here. That the Bible teaches that if you embrace the rhythms rather than go against them and fight them, that you find yourself in life, because this is where God's guiding you or whatever, that you're going to experience less stress in your life. Of course, the the big question is, why did the Apostle Paul experience all that stress that he did? I mean, clearly, I mean, this guy was, you know, biblically literate beyond anything that you and I could ever hope or imagine. And uh, he was, you know, an author of Scripture, and yet he seemed to describe quite stressful experiences that he had gone through as a result of being a Christian, which kind of begs the question, is what we're hearing from Andy Wood what the Bible teaches for real? No, actually, we're not. But he's going to try to make it sound like it is. He's going to give it, well, a good college try. And he's going to engage in a Bible-twisting technique that uh, you need to be aware of. Let's continue. Now, if you have a Bible, I want to invite you to turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verses 1 through 8. Ecclesiastes 3, 1 through 8. He hasn't been preaching through the book of Ecclesiastes. He's just opening up to Ecclesiastes 3, 1 through 8. That could be a problem. It isn't necessarily a problem, but it could be a problem. And we're looking throughout this entire series about how to experience a greater amount of peace or more margin, we've said. We've said more margin. Uh-huh. said that margin is the gap between your limit and your load. It's that gap between... Margin's the limit 
between your yeah, whatever. The okay, the measure between your limit and your load. Where on earth can I go in the Bible to find all of these great margin passages? They don't exist. Between what you can carry and how much you're carrying. And if you have a lot of margin, you have more peace. If you have very little margin, you experience a lot of stress. Now well, if clearly the Apostle Paul had no margin. Isn't that weird? And he you know, and he was a the great apostle Paul. If you think about it, you can increase margin by increasing capacity, and you can also increase margin by decreasing load. The last okay, so you can increase capacity or decrease load. That's great. Um, where does the Bible teach us to do this again? Ecclesiastes three. Now, before he gets to it, let's spend a little bit of time in Ecclesiastes. I mean, what's the point of doing a sermon review if we can't actually get into a book itself and uh, and take a look at what's going on here now? Ecclesiastes chapter 3, you should be familiar with it. Uh, They made it into a song to everything, turn, turn, there is a season, turn, turn, a time to, you know, sow, a time to reap, you know, know, time to live, a time to die, that kind of stuff. And we know the passage. But let's take a look at what's going on by spending some time with the book itself. Now, this is going to cause us to take a look at the broader context. Context, context, context comes into play here. And in order to get what's going on here, we got to get a flavor of what is the book of Ecclesiastes about, uh, if for real. I mean, and so we're going to ask the question. In the section of Ecclesiastes that we are about to read, we're going to read chapter 1. We're going to read chapter 2, and we're going to read chapter 3, verses 1 through 8. When we read that, based upon what you're hearing from Andy Wood here, you would be you would think that what we should be getting while listening to the sermon is that Solomon, who is the author of Ecclesiastes, is going to say, and it's important for you to increase margin in your life so that you can have less stress. And the way to do that is by embracing seasons in your life and not fighting against it. I mean, that's really what we're we're looking for. We're looking for Solomon to be teaching what we're say, what this guy is saying. And notice here, he didn't start off with a biblical text. Nuh-uh. I mean, we are, how many minutes are into this? We're seven minutes into the sermon. And uh, this is the first appearance of the Word of God, and he's done all the setup, and he's made all the points. He's making all these points. Well, we need to do this, we need to do that, we need to do this, we need to do that, without any biblical text that actually say that you need to do that or this. And now we're in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verses 1 through 8, and somehow he's going to shoehorn this text into these assertions that he's made, These, you know, this conjecture he's throwing out there. But um, when we take a look at Ecclesiastes, how much you want to bet the that uh, not the apostle but Solomon isn't going to talk about decreasing stress by increasing margin. How much you want to bet? <clears throat> Let's read Ecclesiastes chapter uh, one verse one. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king of Jerusalem. This is Solomon. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes, a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises, the sun goes down, and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind, and on its circuit the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. 
to the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are full of weariness, a man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, or the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done. There's nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, See, it is, this is new. It has, it has been already in the ages before. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of the light, later things yet to be among those who come after. I, the preacher, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem, and I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under the sun. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, it is all of it is vanity and a striving after the wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight. What is lacking cannot be counted. I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me, and my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge, and I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly, and I perceived that this also is but a striving after the wind. For in much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. I said in my heart, Come now, I will test you with pleasure, enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity. I said of laughter, It is mad and of pleasure, what use is it? I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me in wisdom, and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under the heaven during the few days of their life. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I had also great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, many concubines, the delight of the sons of man. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem." Also, my wisdom remained with me, and whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil. And then I considered all that my hands had done, and the toil I had expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity, and a striving after the wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun." So I turned to consider wisdom and madness and folly. For what can the man do who comes after the king, only what has already been done? And then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly, as there is more gain in light than in darkness. The wise person has, has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks around in darkness. And yet I perceived that the same event happens to all of them. And then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart that this also is vanity. For the wise, as of the fool, 
there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come all will have been long forgotten, how the wise dies just like the fool. So I hated life, because what is done under the sun was grievous to me, for all is vanity and a striving after the wind. I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be wise or a fool, yet he will be master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also was vanity. So I turned around, I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all of the toil of my labors under the sun. Because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. What has a man from all the toil and striving of heart and with which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow, and his work is a vexation. Even in the night his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. There is nothing better for a person that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. For this also I saw is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy, but to the sinner he has given the business of gathering and collecting only to give to one who uh, pleases God. And this also is vanity and a striving after the wind. For everything there is a season and a time for every matter under the heaven, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted, a time to kill, a time to heal, a time to break down and a time to build up, a time to weep and a time to laugh and a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to cast away stones and a time to gather them together, a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing, a time to seek and a time to lose, a time to keep and a time to cast away, a time to tear and a time to sow, a time to keep silence, and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. So what gain has the worker from his toil? I'm going to keep reading a little bit here. I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He has made everything fruit beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into a man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. I perceive that there is nothing better for them to be joyful and to do good as long as they live, also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all of his toil. This is God's gift to man. I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. That which is already has been, and that which is to be already has been, and God seeks what has been driven away. Moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice even there was wickedness, and in the place of righteousness even there was wickedness. And I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time for every matter and for every work. And I said in my heart with regard to the children of man that God is testing them, that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. Now I'm going to stop there. Okay, I've read a lot of Ecclesiastes. And the, the, by the way, if you're sitting there going, well, I want to know how it ends. Ecclesiastes isn't that long. 
It has a wonderful punchline, and I recommend that you read it. We're talking, what, 12 chapters? Huh? And, you know, I've set the stage for you. If you want to know what happens at the end of Ecclesiastes, keep reading. Pick up where I left off about halfway through chapter 3 and keep reading. This is a good book. There's much to it. And if you have a good study Bible, it'll help you understand the overarching theme of what it is that Solomon's getting at in this text. Now, what we've read, does any of that sound like the importance of here's how you relieve stress in your life by increasing margin and by embracing the rhythms of the season that you find yourself in? No, the the, the Ecclesiastes says nothing of the sort. In other words, what we're about to hear from uh, Andy Wood is all vanity because it's a twisting of God's word and a chasing after the wind, a wind that isn't even blowing in the book of Ecclesiastes, which is kind of weird and ironic if you think about it. We continue. A few weeks, we've looked at both of those strategies. Now, the strategy for living with more stress that we're looking at today allows us to both increase capacity and decrease our load by cooperating with God to embrace the unique season that we find ourselves in. Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verses 1 through 8, Solomon writes this. He says, there is a time for everything. There's a time for everything and a season for every activity under heaven. Now, Solomon is writing this letter towards the end of his life. He has been the king of the nation of Israel and notably one of the most wise people to ever walk the planet. And he's looking back almost cynically on his life. And in this book, sounds a little bit like he's been listening to some emo music as he's writing this letter. But he comes with this great wisdom that oftentimes only comes through difficulty and trial. It only comes through walking about the seasons of life with wisdom. And here's what he says. Time for everything. A time to be born, a time to die, a time to plant and a time to uproot, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to tear down and a time to build, a time to weep and a time to laugh. Some of you guys are hearing that song that goes to every season, turn, turn, turn. I tried out for the band. I got cut. They wouldn't let me sing on stage here, but I'm, I'm getting my moment right here. Because remember the song. There's a season, turn, turn, turn. All right, time to scatter stones, a time to gather them. I forgot to mourn. A time to mourn and a time to dance. There's a time to embrace and hug. There's a time to refrain and for there to be distance. A time to search, a time to give up, a time to keep and a time to throw away, a time to tear and a time to mend, a time to be silent. Extroverts, a time to speak introverts, a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. There is a time and a season for every activity under heaven. Is it better to love or to hate? Well, it's better to love in certain instances, but you you should find this kind of hatred. Maybe if there's an area of your life that needs to change or there's some teenage boy trying to date your daughter, it's a time. Um, yeah. Uh, you're not really doing justice to this text. This sounds like another guy who's like just invented his own religion and decided, yeah, I'm just going to turn the Bible into, you know, silly putty and just bend it into any little shape or form that I want to. Time, maybe to hate. There is a time for every activity under the sun, Solomon says. Now, when you and I read a passage of scripture like this, there's a lot that we can miss if we don't understand the context and what was being understood. <laughs> yeah, 
There's a lot we can miss if we don't understand the context. I just read the context, and the context shows you're not actually teaching what this passage is talking about. Understood by all of the hearers who listen to Solomon's word. See, in the ancient world, there were two concepts of time that were a filter for how a person would have received Solomon's instruction. See, one concept of time is this idea of chronological time. It's this idea of... Uh, Yeah, so he's trying to go into the historical context. Uh, The difference between season and time, chronos versus kairos time. Um, Yeah, that's not really coming into play here. It's really not going to help hermeneutically unpack what's going on in that text. Of the minutes and the seconds, it's the idea of the hours and the days or the weeks the months and the years that we find ourselves in. And so often when we think about time, we think of it literally as the time on our phones or the time on our watches. And if you read this passage of scripture and the problem with our struggle trying to balance many things is we try to do it all at once. We look at life just linearly through this lens of chronological time and fail to recognize that the hearer, The listener in the first century when Jesus taught and the listener when Solomon taught close to a thousand years before that, when they would listen to Solomon's teaching, they would think of time through a different lens. And it's this other word called kairos. And the literal translation is Solomon writes of this word kairos when he says a time for everything. He literally means there is a stage a season, an opportunity, an open door for every activity under heaven. And it's a different time to tear down. And it's a different time when you build. Yeah. I mean, even the English here understands this. I mean, whoo, this, like as if somehow in the 21st century, we, ha- we don't have the a concept between seasons and minutes. Yeah, that's ridiculous. Up. There's a time when you love. There's a time when you hate. There is a time to mend. There is a time to tear apart. He says there is a season for every activity under heaven. And so many times we are overloaded. We're stressed because we're trying to do every activity simultaneously instead of embracing the fact that God has ordered life. So that we would focus on certain activities during the unique season or stages of life. Let me explain it. Yeah, again, let me play that again. I want you to hear what his takeaway is. And this is completely ridiculous. Instead of embracing the fact that God has ordered life so that we would focus on certain activities during the unique season or stages of life. Let me explain You make it sound like, oh, here's your big cosmic problem. I mean, those of you who are no longer in the season of child rearing, you know, your problem is you're not embracing your new season. And those of you who are no longer kids but are now young married with little kids, your problem is you're not embracing your season. There may be some aspects to this that are correct, but that isn't even what's really going on here in Ecclesiastes. Let me explain it like this. See, when you look at your life, It's almost as if God gives you a bucket and inside that bucket comes both burdens and blessings or burdens and benefits. It's kind of like when you go to work, right? And you get a paycheck. And at the end of the week, when you get that paycheck, you're getting a paycheck 
for the burden that you've been carrying with your job. There are both burdens and benefits that come with every tangible blessing that God gives into our lives. And as we look at the different seasons of life, there is a different burden and there is a different benefit that every one of us face with the different seasons. I'll explain it like this. You know, when you're in college, you have a whole lot more time on your hands, don't you? You can go to the beach on Saturday and you can hang out in Santa Cruz, baby. And you can go to the beach and just chill in 80 degree weather, loving life because you have a little bit more time on your hand. But also you have to study and you've got some finals that are coming up. And even though you have more margin right there, when it's time for the finals, there's a burden that comes with the benefit or the blessing of being in that season of life. Now, think about it a little bit further down the road. This is a little dress that goes on my daughter, Karis. There's going to be a picture that will come on the screen and you can see how beautiful she is. She's four and a half months old. Isn't she so cute? This dress fits on her. doesn't fit on me. Just in case any of you are wondering, I don't wear dresses, but um, there is a benefit to this season of life of holding that precious little girl in our arms. And it'll be gone pretty soon. But you know, that benefit comes with a burden. And there are lots of dirty diapers. And I don't want to act like I changed most of them because my beautiful wife, Stacy, is the one that's up. Do you think this is what Ecclesiastes 3, 1 through 8 is about? It's not. Up in the middle of the night, many times changing diapers. And there's a burden that comes with the benefit. You know, later on in life, we get to a place where we have a little bit more time on our hands. Maybe for some of you, you're at a place where you've had more opportunity for ministry and to invest in other generations. But that benefit of more time also comes with a burden. I've heard my parents say before that there's an eerie silence in the home when the kids are gone. My dad said to me recently, he said, Andy, I'd give any amount of money to have you be the age that your kids are again and to be able to relive that season. I said, Dad, you can give me 10,000 bucks. I'll send the boys to you for a couple of weeks. <laughs> There's a burden that comes with the benefit. Or maybe for you, with that, way, that freedom that you have financially, there's a physical ailment. And now when you're more free, there's also a burden that accompanies that blessing and that benefit that God has given to you. See, here's what we do if you're anything like me. We have a tendency to minimize the benefits in the moment, don't we? Now, notice he hasn't actually exegeted text. He hasn't read it in context. Everything he's saying has nothing to do with what that passage is even about. That passage was just the touch point so that he can dip his toe into the biblical water and say, look, I preached a biblical sermon We even read like eight verses. Dude, where were you if you're saying it was unbiblical? But he's not actually dealing with what the passage is really about. This The passage is not about margin and embracing certain seasons in your life and talking about you know, the time when you're in college, when you're a young adult or an empty nester. That's not what it's about. We make it seem smaller, and in the rearview mirror, the benefit is always bigger. That kid that you were holding... 10 years ago, you think to yourself when you got that teenager, oh, how I wish I could just have that mouth shut and have him as a baby in my arms again. That benefit is always bigger in the rearview mirror. We minimize our benefits or our blessings, but what do we do? 
we maximize our burdens, don't we? And we walk around and we complain and we gripe about how heavy the load is in this moment. All the while, God is leading our lives through seasons. And if we cooperate with the season that God has us in this life, then what we can do is we can maximize the benefit and minimize the burden. And what I want to do for the few... Oh, if only... See, that's what... Apparently, that's what Solomon was teaching all along. If you can just go with the seasonal program, and then you can maximize your benefit and minimize your burden, and then whammo, blammo, more peace in your life. That's what Solomon was really talking about, right? Nope. A few moments that we have remaining is I want to share with you a... A series of principles that have changed my life. So you're done with the Bible and you're now going to share with us a series of principles that's changed your life. Well, I mean, if it's changed your life, it must be true, right? That in this middle, the middle of this season of being a dad with three small kids, this series of principles that comes out of an incredible book called Your Life in Rhythm has changed the way I think about marriage, friendship, parenting, the way I think about work. You're going to teach us principles from a book called Your Life and Rhythm? Who wrote it? Uh, Was it one of the prophets? Was it one of the apostles? Was it Moses? Who wrote this book? And it's led to greater peace for me. And this book, I encourage you to get it online and read it and devour it. But these principles, I want to encourage you, we're going to walk through three strategies for embracing your burdens and benefits. Three strategies for embracing your unique season that you find yourself in. Now, I want to give you two questions to start off. And these two questions, I want to invite you to write the response down on your notes. And we're going to do a little bit of teaching and some thinking, okay? You have to engage with me here personally as we're thinking through both campuses, Sunnyvale, North San Jose. Write down the response to these two questions. The first one is this. What stage of life do you find yourself in right now? And I'm going to give you 10 particular stages. And you might find another one. This is not exhaustive. It's just 10 stages that we go through in life. Okay. Number one is you're a student. Maybe you're in college or a high school student. Number three is adulthood. Number four is young professional. Number five is young married. Number six is married with young kids. Number seven is married with teen teenagers and they know everything and they have all the answers at this point. They're smarter than their parents. When you get to this, that's what everybody tells me as teenagers. It started with us with young kids. They already are smarter than us. Number eight is single parent. Number nine, empty nest. Number 10, grandparent. Now, which stage of life are you in? Stages are a little bit longer than seasons. Stages could be three to five to 10 years long, but this stage will help you think through the lens that will allow you to apply the principles that we're going to talk about in just a few moments. Next is, what is your season of life? I'm going to give you 10 categories here as well. One is plowing. Maybe you're an entrepreneur. You're trying to raise your VC money right now and fund the business and the dream. That well, you know, Patricia King did have the ox anointing, so I think she's in the plowing phase of her life. That's in your heart. Number two is sowing. Maybe you're a student in college investing in your future and you're sowing seeds into your future. Number three is growing. 
Maybe there's a career or some friendships or businesses that are or business that's growing in your life or um, a, a, a series of f- friendships that are now starting to blossom. And then number four is harvest. Maybe you are at a place where you're experiencing fruitfulness of something you've been building towards for years. Maybe you're in a grief and loss season, number five, where you've lost a dream or a loved one. Maybe you're in number six, a recovery season where there's an addiction or a struggle. You're trying to overcome. Number seven is a victory. Maybe you just made that big sale or hit the lotto and you got the bonus. Number uh, eight would be a defeat. Yeah, notice he's completely abandoned at this point any semblance of even trying to preach through God's word. We're beyond that now. We're into application from a book he read, you know. Number nine would be a new beginning. Now, a defeat would be something like you just lost a job or something that you're trying is not working. Number nine, a new beginning is a new job, a new marriage, maybe a new business that you're starting. And number 10 would be a transition in between stages, both personally or organizationally that you're a part of. Now, I ran through this because I think you're very quickly going to be able to identify your season and your stage. What I want you to do is to write those down inside your program, and we're going to walk through some questions and some principles that will give you a strategy to maximize your blessings and benefits and minimize the burden and cooperate and embrace the season that God has you in right now. So principle number one, in order to embrace your season is this, it's to seize opportunity that is available in that season. See, there are certain opportunities that God will... Couldn't I get this from Dr. Phil? Why, Why would I go to church to hear this nonsense? place in front of you in this season that will not be available to you in the next season. This is both physically and spiritually. I remember in college having this unique privilege of being able to have long times of prayer and meditation and Bible study. I remember having the freedom between classes to go back to my dorm room and to read or to go sit on the lawn or to go to the beach And to be able to just chill and relax, as my boys say, chillax. I used to be able to have this time to slow down. And that opportunity, oh my goodness, how a young parent longs for silence in these moments when kids are all over the house and it's crazy. There there was that season to invest in my relationship with God in a way when I was in college that I don't have that opportunity now. Some of you who are singles, you have more freedom right now to travel and to go on mission trips. Maybe it's participating in the mission trip that we're taking to Ethiopia or the mission trip that we're taking to China. See, there's this opportunity that is to be seized. I remember in college, every summer. This is what it sounds like when you're having a famine of God's word. I would go away for two months or one month overseas and many of, of what got, many of the things that God has done in my life came out of that season where there was an opportunity to be seized that now I can't leave and take off for a month like I was able to when I was that age. There are opportunities to be seized in every season that change. Every stage of life is different. Right now, we are baseball parents. In fact, both of our boys play on separate teams in separate leagues. So last week we had like four different occasions of baseball in our home. And Sammy, our youngest son, had his first... And what does this have to do with Ecclesiastes again? Nothing. All of this is vanity and a chasing after the wind. 
first ever baseball game on Saturday. Now, Sammy is adopted, and he's from Ethiopia. As you can tell, um, he came out a different color. So, you know, genetically, um, we're not of the same ethnicity. And I say this because Sammy, from his father, of course, got all of his athletic skills. When he was on the field yesterday, was incredible. He's like a little Jackie Robinson. He's diving all the So now you're going to share with us your kids' sports exploits. Okay. All over the place, making saves. And then at the end of the game, the coach decides who's going to get the game ball. And she brings all the kids into the dugout. And she lines them up and she says, today's game ball goes to none other than Sammy Wood. And she takes the ball over to him and she says, for diving on the field, for making plays, for making hits. And I look at the expression in my son's eyes and he lights up in this sense of joy in that moment. And I'm standing there in the dugout and the thought crosses my mind. This moment will never be available again. There will never be another first baseball game for Sammy. And today, I was here. I received and seized this moment. And I don't want to miss it. I don't want to get to the point where my kids are grown up and leaving the house and realize that I could have laid a foundation that would have forever changed the trajectory of their life spiritually. And I'm. And the weird thing is, is that you could have actually exegeted a, a biblical passage correctly and taken this moment and preached the word and proclaimed Christ and him crucified for our sins and called people to repentant faith in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. You could have rightly handled God's word and taught what's in accord with sound doctrine, the type of preaching of God's word that produces the fruit of the spirit in people's lives. And you'll never have this moment back again. You didn't do that. And so the foundation you've laid is corrupt and weird. I missed it because I was trying to balance everything at once and trying to be Superman and do all things that are supposed to be done in all seasons. Instead, I want to engage and embrace the opportunity that is unique to this moment. See, grandparents, some of you, you're at that season or that stage. Kids are grown, house is empty, and you have an opportunity to lay a foundation into the future generation. And you know the, the beautiful thing about all of it is that you get to get them high on candy. And when their diaper is dirty, just give them back to your kids, mom and dad. It's just like beautiful, the perfect combination of it all. But there is an opportunity in that season that is to be seized. Now, the question is, what is the unique opportunity that you need to seize in this stage or season of life that will forever be gone when you get to that next season of life? See, the way that God... And yet he's in the season of his life where he's a pastor and a preacher, and he's not embracing the season, is he? Orders life is that when you seize that opportunity and you open up your hands to what it is that he wants to do in your heart right now, you are laying a foundation of wisdom that leads to greater joy and greater peace as you traverse through the seasons of life. Number two is this, what expectations do you need to release in this category of releasing 
expectations from your life. See, the first one is seizing opportunities. And the second one is releasing expectations in every season of life. There are unique opportunities and there are unique expectations that are upon you in that season. But there are expectations of former seasons and future seasons that need to be released in this season. I'll give you an example. See, I long for having a beautiful backyard. I long for having flowers and beautiful furniture in the backyard and a clean back patio. But every time I try to clean my backyard, you know what? There are bikes and scooters and kids color on my furniture with chalk and they put it together with water. And when it becomes this mixture of water and chalk, it becomes paste. And so I have furniture in my backyard that's ruined and I go many nights down into the basement and I want my basement or our downstairs area to be clean. And I find myself stepping on Legos as I walk through the house. And I have learned that if I try to keep this incredible order to our household that Stacy and I had before kids, that I'm just going to find myself insanely frustrated. I'm going to, I'm going to find my relationship with my kids. Yeah, yeah this, I'm sure this is just practical advice, but this has nothing to do with biblical sanctification. It's maxed out and I'm going to find myself breathing down their necks all the time and releasing that expectation of, an, of something that we did previously and one day we'll do again. I promise you one day I will have an immaculate backyard where I can read books and drink coffee and look at the sunshine of beautiful California. But in this season of life, there's an expectation that has to be released. Otherwise, I don't experience the kind of peace that God wants me to experience. The question is, what... Uh, which biblical passage says that, that you won't experience the kind of peace that God wants you to experience if you don't embrace the whatever in this season? Ecclesiastes 3 doesn't say that. What expectation needs to be released in this season of life? You see, when you're at this place in life, I'm not going to use the word old, but when you're mature and your body is ailing, you don't have the same physical capacity that you once did. And to put an expectation on yourself that you would run at the same pace or in the same way that you did previously will create stress for you and in the most important relationships in your life. Now's the time to leverage your wisdom over energy to invest in future generations instead of being able to run at Mach 2 speed. What is the unique season of life that you find yourself in and what is the expectation that needs to be released? If you're a young mom, let me release you of the expectation that every day you would spend time being able to read your Bible or read the Bible for long, uninterrupted, quiet times of prayer and meditation. You know, I, I have this kind of philosophy where I shoot for every day to read the Bible and usually get about four or five days a week. And I'm sure some of you are like, you're a horrible pastor. Um, but I'm like the rest of us just trying to do my best to follow Jesus and Sometimes I will set my Bible and my journal on a coffee table. The job of the pastor is to preach the word, which means he needs to be in it studying it and preparing good sermons that actually teach us what it really says. He's not doing his homework. I will pre-make the coffee. I will have my clothes laid out for the next day. I'll go to sleep at 930 with the goal of waking up at 530. And there have been multiple times where this has happened. I wake up at 530. And when I get up, I hear a crying baby. My wife's not in our bedroom. She's in the baby's bedroom. 
And I realized that my wife has been spending the entire night trying to help this baby sleep. She brings the baby downstairs. She hands the baby to me. And I look at her and I say, no, this is my time that I read the Bible. This is my time that I pray. You're getting it, right? It's a joke. It's, it's my Bible study and prayer time that day. My quiet time is holding a baby and releasing the expectation that in this season of life, I'd be able to have these long, uninterrupted quiet times. See, it changes in our inability to release expectation in this season of life will render us unable to seize divine opportunities that will be gone in a moment, in a flash. One day, she's not going to fit in my arms anymore. One day, I'll be walking her down an aisle to some jerk that will never be good enough for her. (laughs) One day, the moments, the opportunities that are in front of you today will be gone. And in this season... Some expectations need to be released so you can seize divine opportunities. Where in the Bible does it say that you have to release expectations in order to seize divine opportunities? It doesn't say that in Ecclesiastes 3. This isn't a biblical teaching. This is just some, well, some teaching that sounds Christian-ish, but it's not really Christian. What's that expectation that needs to be released for you? And then last, but certainly not least, is this. It's to anticipate the future. See, what we need to do is we need to seize opportunity that's unique to that season. We need to release expectations that will be reasonable expectations in a future season or we're in a former. But the third thing is to anticipate what is ahead. See, when you're in college and in high school, that's, that's not going to be your reality forever. At some point, you're going to graduate from high school. And most of those people that are your BFFs right now, that are writing in your yearbook, never change, always stay the same. You won't remember their name 10 years from now. I promise you. And you'll look at them on Facebook and you'll look at some guy that was in your class. You think, who in the world is this person? You're going to go from this season to the next. But in your hands, in this season of life, are some seeds that can only be sown into the ground in this season. And if you miss that sowing of those seeds in anticipation of the future, when you get to the future, there will not be a harvest in that season of life that should be there. It's the couple that has little kids or teenagers, and they let the children run their lives, and they never invest in their marriage. And so consequently, when the kids are gone, when the nest is empty... They divorce and they split apart because they never invested in their life, anticipating that there might be a day when the kids would grow up and leave. It's that person that doesn't care for their body physically, never thinking about the fact that one day I'll be 70 or 80 years old and the decisions I make today will influence my destiny tomorrow. And if I anticipate the future, I can make decisions today that will set my life up for success in the future to seize opportunities that will only be able to be seized in that next season of life. So the question for you is, what decisions do you need to make today in order to be better prepared for life's future seasons? There are decisions that you can make today to prepare for the future that God has for your life. I'll give you a couple of questions that have helped me determine the answer to this question. One question is, what kind of person will I be 10 years from now? 
Another way to frame it is what does God want my life to be like? What will my marriage be like? What will my fight? Yeah, how am I supposed to know what God wants for my life if you're not going to actually preach the word so that I can know what God wills for me from what he's revealed in scripture? Finances be like, what will my physical fitness be like? I have this vision statement that 10 years from now, I want my wife to enjoy seeing me with my shirt off. So you have a personal vision statement for your life. Have you cast vision to yourself? Do you re recast it every day? Just one of my little vision statements. I'm working really hard to make that happen. I'm still not there, but I'm sure 10 years from now I will be. See, thinking about life through a different lens, though, of where will I be 10 years from now allows you to adjust the trajectory so that in this season. And what if you're dead 10 years from now? I mean, why are we focusing on all of these temporal things rather than focusing our eyes on the eternal? You can take those seeds that are in your hand. In every season, there's a set of seeds in your hand that have to be sowed in this season to give a harvest in the next season. And the question is, what are those unique decisions that you can make today? Some of us, it's storing up for retirement so that when you are a grandparent, you have the ability to travel and visit your grandkids. Some of us, in addition, it's investing in and laying a foundation in the lives of our children in the same way it's seizing an opportunity. It's anticipating the future that there will be a moment when you don't make their decisions for them anymore. And there will be a moment when they'll go off into a world, a big world with lots and lots of decisions and value systems that are different than the value system of your home. And you can, yeah, how am I supposed to have a Christian value system in my home if I'm not hearing God's word so that I know what the values that God wants me to have are so that I can repent of false values and embrace true values? I mean, how am I supposed to do that? You're not teaching me God's word. You're teaching me from a self-help book. You can lay that foundation today in anticipation of the future. See, life traverses, doesn't it? And sometimes in this season, that burden that you are carrying can feel so heavy. And that blessing and benefit that God has given to you can seem so small. And what God is wanting to say and speak into our lives today is that in cooperation with his Holy Spirit, in cooperation with the principles and the ways that he has ordered life to flow, that you can seize opportunity, release expectation, and anticipate the future, and you can maximize... Release expectation, anticipate the future, and maximize what? Maximize or grow the size of that blessing. Gr maximize and grow the size of blessing. Where does the Bible say I can do that again? It doesn't. This is a human doctrine. This does not have its origin in God's word. This is man made. And you can minimize the size of the burden or the weight. And instead of carrying all these burdens that you'll carry in the future or that you should have carried in the past, release those expectations to find a kind of peace that God wants for our lives to experience right now in this moment. I'll give you a couple more examples from my life. Every Friday. Did you hear that? I'll give you a couple more examples from my life. Who's he preaching about himself? And what's he preaching to us? Tips and, trips, uh, and tricks from a self-help book. And, of course, his life, because it's been transformed by the self-help book, 
Well, that means it's true, so we should be preaching it from the pulpit, right? Friday's my day off when we do homeschool with our boys. We go on what we call Boys Club. And a couple of weeks ago, we went over to Happy Hollow Zoo in the Japanese garden, and my boys decided that they want to be ninjas that day. And they grab sticks, and they're ruining the grass at this Japanese garden and have no clue about their surroundings and just enjoying this moment. And it struck me. There's going to be a time when those kids don't want to hang out with me anymore. There's going to be a time when somebody's texting them, asking them to go hang out. And boys club is not going to be quite as cool to them anymore. But for right now, they want to spend every waking moment that I will give with them. They want to wrestle with me when I walk through the door. They want to hang out on Friday and Saturday. and They complain when I have to go to work on Monday. And in this season of life, I don't want to miss what God has placed in front of me with my marriage, with work, with my friendships, with relationships. And today, God brought you here. Sunnyvale, North San Jose, God brought you here for a reason. God brought you here to communicate to you. You cannot always choose the season that you find yourself in, but you can always choose your response to that season. And by cooperating with him and embracing and living within the rhythms of life and the order of life he's created, you can experience greater peace and less stress. Now, as we conclude our time together, it would be wrong for me to not recognize the fact that there are some of you here today, both of our campuses, that have lost all hope. You've lost hope because of a marriage that's fallen apart. You've lost hope maybe because of a relationship with a parent or a friend. You've lost hope because of a physical ailment or a bad doctor's report. And the kind of hope that God wants to give to your life today is not just for a better life in this world. See, the season and... Okay, good. We're going to transition to talking a little bit more than just what's going on in this world. Will we hear the gospel. Christ died for our sins, and will we hear sinners being called to repent of their sins and be forgiven? And the stage that we're in is temporary. The scripture says that this life is like a mist, that it's here. We live 70, 80 years, 90 years if we're blessed, and it's gone forever. Our lives are a mist, but we will carry on for all of eternity, that you are an eternal being. And Solomon would say in the same passage that God has set eternity into the hearts of men and women. And his desire for you and I is not just to receive the blessings that he wants to give to our lives in this life, but it's to receive the spiritual blessings that can only come through what Jesus would do on a cross his death there hanging between two Roman soldiers and his... Now he's talking about gospel elements. Let's see if he gets to the gospel itself. His resurrection from the grave, that by his death and resurrection and through God's grace, as we place our faith and trust in Jesus. For what? Faith and trust in him for what reason? What God wants to give to us is an eternal blessing. Okay, for an eternal blessing, um, you kind of skipped over something. That no difficulty, 
no trial, no bad doctor's report, no marriage that is falling apart, no job loss can take away from us. It's an eternal blessing that does not come with a burden. Mm, Yeah, you're describing the effects of sin. How about the fact that they are guilty of committing those sins? It's an eternal blessing that comes in relationship with him. That from this moment, for all eternity, you can be connected to the very source of life that is the... So, but you're describing him as kind of like the big sugar daddy in the sky who wants to just bless you. I mean, the way you're describing God is kind of like a old senile grandpa with the you know butterscotch candies in his pocket and he just wants to give you blessing after blessing after blessing and just you just need to trust him for those blessings but see the point of the cross was not just god doling out blessings it's that he suffered and died in our place on the cross taking the punishment that we deserve for our sins upon himself the burdens of this life are weighing heavy on you. There's a future hope that God can give to your life through Jesus and his resurrection and your faith in him. And today, if you are in a place where you have lost hope in this life, God wants to speak hope into you to say that there is more. He can come in and be your strength and he can give you hope that one day when you cross from this life to the next, that you will be in his presence forever. Yeah, are you going to tell them to repent of their sins and to be forgiven? That you will live in a place where there will be no more tears, no more mourning. Scripture says that one day there will be no more suffering, no more sorrow, no more bad doctor's reports, no more divorces, no more babies that die, no more suffering. This is true. This is for those who are brought to penitent faith in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. The gospel is that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scripture. He was buried and raised again on the third day um, for our sins. You need to tell them that they're sinners and they need to repent and be forgiven. One day, and many of us today are disconnected from that hope and relationship that God wants to give to our lives. And that's because of sin. And today you can receive his hope by faith in Jesus and what he's done on a cross and opening your life to him to say, today I choose. Uh, open my life to him. That's not the call of the gospel. To follow you and his hope can enter into your situation to give you hope beyond this life. So I wonder if you're exploring faith today, if you would give the message and life of Jesus a try. Give the message of Jesus a try. Good college try. Just try it out. Kick the tires and you know, maybe take it for take Jesus for a test drive. <clears throat> the call of the gospels repent and be forgiven. And you would open up your heart to him to say, Jesus, I believe you came to live on earth, that you died on a cross and you resurrected from the dead. You died on the cross for my sins. And I'm going to choose the best of my ability, not perfectly, to the best of my ability to follow you with my life. And I'm going to thank you in advance for the hope that you're going to give to me that God can enter into your life today and change you. If you are a follower of Jesus and today you're here, God's commission for you is that he has placed opportunities in front of you that will be gone tomorrow. And his challenge to you today is to embrace those blessings and benefits and with his help to receive his strength for those burdens that you're carrying and let him lead you through the seasons of life in a way of wisdom 
that allows you to decrease your load, increase your capacity and experience his peace. As we conclude together, I'm going to give you an opportunity to respond. And inside your program, you'll see that there's a connection card. And if you're able oh, man. So they're going to respond by signing a connection card. Able to locate that. Learn from Saddleback. At this point, I want to give you just an opportunity to respond. And in just a moment, we're all going to turn our connection cards in, writing down what our next steps are. Maybe today your next step is becoming a follower of Jesus. Maybe today it's a prayer request. Maybe there's a decision that you're making. And for just a few moments, we're going to let you write down your next steps. We're going to have a moment of silence. And then afterwards, I will pray for us here at North San Jose. And then our campus pastor, Felipe, over at Sunnyvale will wrap up the service on that campus together. So let's take a moment of silence to write down our next steps, and then I'll close this up afterwards. All right, so there you go. There were gospel-y type elements in there, but we didn't hear the gospel. We didn't hear about repentance and the forgiveness of sins. We didn't hear uh, Ecclesiastes 3 rightly preached and rightly handled. And the bulk of the sermon was... Um, tips and tricks and stuff that he's scoured from a self-help book about embracing the seasons in your life. And, of course, the all-important next steps. What, what's your next step? Man, it's not Christian preaching. This is a different religion. It has a form of godliness but denies the power thereof. What do you think? Love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian or follow me on Twitter. My name there at pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ, by carious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen. 